Trev woke up half an hour later when Glenda brought him a cup of tea. "'I thought we'd better let you sleep,' she said. "'Juliet said you looked awful, so obviously she's coming to her senses.' "'He was dead,' said Trev. "'Dead as a doorknob. And then he wasn't. What's that all about?' He levered himself up and realised that he had been put to bed on one of the grubby bedrolls in the vats. Nut was lying on the roll next to him. "'All right,' said Glenda. "'If you can do it without lying, tell me.' She sat down and watched the sleeping Nut for a while as Trev tried to make sense of the previous evening. "'What was in the sandwich again, the one the Igor gave him?' "'Tuna, spaghetti, and jam. "'With sprinkles,' said Trev, yawning. "'Are you sure? "'It's not the kind of thing you forget.' "'What kind of jam?' Glenda insisted. "'Why ask?' "'I'm thinking it might work with quince, or chilli. "'Can't see any place for sprinkles, though. "'They don't make any sense.' "'What? He's an eagle. "'It doesn't have to make sense.' "'But he warned you about Mr. Nutt.' "'Yeah, but I don't think he meant lock up your pies, do you? "'Are you going to get into trouble about the pies?' "'No, I've got plenty more maturing in the cool room. "'They're at their best when they're matured. "'You have to keep ahead of yourself with pies.' "'She looked down at Nut and went on. "'Are you really telling me he got all smashed up by the Stollop boys "'and then walked out of the Lady Sibyl? "'He was dead as a doorknob. "'Even old Addock could spot that.' "'This time they both stared at Nut.' "'He's alive now,' said Glenda, as if it was an accusation. "'Look,' said Trev, "'all I know about people who come from Oberwald "'is that some of them are vampires and some are werewolves. "'Well, I don't think vampires are much interested in pies, "'and it was a full moon last week and he didn't act odd. "'Well, odder than normal.' "'Glenda lowered her voice. "'Maybe he's a zombie. "'No, they don't eat pies either.' "'She continued to stare at Nut, "'but another part of her said,' "'There's going to be a banquet on Wednesday night. "'Lord Vetinari's up to something with the wizards. "'It's about the football, I'm sure of it. "'Well, for some plan, I expect. "'Something nasty. "'The wizards were at the game today, taking notes. "'Don't tell me that's healthy. "'They want to shut down football, that's what it is. "'Good. "'Trevor Likely, how can you say that? "'Your dad died because he was dumb.' said Trev, and don't tell me it was the way he'd wanted to go. No one would want to go like that. But he loved his football. So what does that mean? The Stollop boys love their football. Andy Shank loves his football. And what does it mean? Not counting today, how often have you seen the ball in play? Hardly ever, I bet. Well, yes, but it's not about the football. You're saying that football is not about football? Glenda wished she'd had a proper education, or failing that, any real education at all. But she was not going to back off now. It's the sharing, she said. It's being part of the crowd. It's chanting together. It's all of it. It's the whole thing. I believe, Miss Glenda, said Nutt from his mattress, that the work you are looking for is Trausenblätz der Selbst überschritten durch das Ganze. They looked down at Nutt again, mouths open. He had opened his eyes and appeared to be staring at the ceiling. It is the lonely soul trying to reach out to the shared soul of all humanity and possibly much further. W.E.G. Goodnight's translation of In Search of the Whole is marred, while quite understandable, by the mistranslation of Bifurstheinischweller as haircut throughout. Trev and Glenda looked at one another. Trev shrugged. Where could they start? Glenda coughed. Mr. Nutt, are you alive or dead or what? Alive, thank you very much for asking. I saw you killed! "'Trev shouted. "'We ran all the way to the Lady Sibyl.' "'Oh,' said Nut, "'I am sorry, I do not recall. "'It would seem that diagnosis was an error. "'Am I right?' "'They exchanged glances. "'Trev got the worst of it. "'When Glenda was angry, "'her glance might just possibly etch glass. "'But Nut had a point. "'It was hard to argue with a man "'who insisted that he was not dead. "'Um, and then you came back here "'and ate nine pies,' said Glenda. "'Looks like they did you good,' said Trev, with brittle cheerfulness. "'But I can't see where they've gone,' Glenda finished. "'Bellybusters, every one of them.' "'You will be angry with me,' Nut looked frightened. "'Let's all calm down, shall we?' said Trev. "'Look, I was pretty worried. My oath, yes. Not angry, OK? We're your friends.' "'I must be becoming. I must be helpful.' This came from Nut's lips like a mantra. Glenda took his hands. "'Look!' 
I'm not bothered about the pies. Really, I'm not. I like to see a man with a good appetite. But you must tell us what's wrong. Have you done something you shouldn't? I should be making myself worthy, Nut said, pulling away gently and not meeting her eyes. I must be becoming. I must not lie. I must gain worth. Thank you for your kindness. He got up, walked down the length of the vats, picked up a basket of candles, came back, wound up his dribbling machine, and began to work, oblivious of their presence. Do you know what goes on in his head? Glenda whispered. When he was young, he was chained to an anvil for seven years, said Trev. What? That's terrible. Someone must have been very cruel to do something like that, or desperate to make sure he didn't get free. Things are never all they seem, Mr. Trev, said Nutt, without looking up from his feverish activity. And the acoustics in these cellars are very good. Your father loved you, did he not? What? Trev's face reddened. He loved you. Took you to the football, shared a pie with you, taught you to cheer for the dimmers. Did he hold you on his shoulders so that you could see more of the game? Stop talking about my dad like that. Glenda took Trev's arm. It's okay, Trev. It's all right. It's not a nasty question, really. It isn't. But you hate him because he became a mortal man, dying on the cobbles," said Nut, picking up another undribbled candle. That is nasty," said Glenda. Nut ignored her. He let you down, Mister Trev. He wasn't the small boy's god. It turned out that he was only a man, but he was not only a man. Everyone who has ever watched a game in this city has heard of Dave Likely. If he was a fool, then any man who has ever climbed a mountain or swum a torrent is a fool. If he was a fool, then so was the man who first tried to tame fire. If he was a fool, then so was the man who tried the first oyster. He was a fool too, although I'm bound to remark that, given the division of labour in early hunter-gatherer cultures, he was probably a woman as well. Perhaps only a fool gets out of bed, but after death, some fools shine like stars, and your father is such a one. After death, people forget the foolishness, but they do remember the shine. You could not have done anything. You could not have stopped him. If you could have stopped him, he would not have been Dave Likely, a name that means football to thousands of people. Nut very carefully put down a beautifully dribbled candle and continued, "Think about this, Mister Trev. Don't be smart. Smart is only a polished version of dumb. Try intelligence. It will surely see you through." That's just a load of words," said Trev hotly. But Glenda saw the glistening lines down his cheeks. "Please think about them, Mister Trev," said Nut, and added, "There, I have done a complete basket. That is worth." It was the calmness. Nut had been spinning, almost sick with anxiety. He'd been repeating himself as if he'd had to learn things for a teacher, and then he was otherwise, totally reserved and collected. Glenda looked from Trev to Nut and back again. Trev's mouth hung open. She didn't blame it. What Nut had said, with quiet matter-of-factness, had sounded like not an opinion but the truth, winched out of some deep well. Then Trev broke the silence, speaking as if hypnotized. His voice hoarse. He gave me his old jersey when I was five. It was like a tent. I mean, it was so greasy I never got wet. He stopped. After a moment, Glenda pushed at his elbow. "He's gone all stiff," she said, "as stiff as a piece of wood." "Ah, catatonic," said Nut. "He is overwhelmed by his feelings. We should lay him down." "These old mattresses they sleep on in here are rubbish," said Glenda, looking around for a better alternative to cold flagstones. "I know the very thing," said Nut, suddenly all action and plunging off down the passage. This left Glenda still holding a rigid Trev when Juliet appeared from the direction of the kitchens. She stopped instantly when she saw them and burst into tears. "He's dead, isn't he?" "Uh, no," Glenda began. "I talked to some of the bakery lads coming into work, and they're telling me there's been fights all over the city, and someone got himself murdered." "Trev's just had a bit of a shock. That's all. Mister Nutt's gone to find something for him to lie down on." "Oh," 
Juliet sounded a little disappointed, presumably because a bit of a shock was not sufficiently dramatic, but she rallied just as a loud, rough, and uniquely wooden noise from the other direction heralded Nut pushing a large couch, which shuddered to a halt in front of them. "'There's a big room, piled up with old furniture up the hall,' he said, patting the faded velvet. "'It's a bit musty, but I think all the mice have fallen out on the way here. "'Quite a find, actually. "'I believe it is a chaise longue from the workshop of the famous Gurning Upspire. "'I think I can probably restore it later. "'Let him down gently.' "'What happened to him?' said Juliet. "'Oh, the truth can be a little bit upsetting,' said Nut. "'But he will get over it and feel better.' "'I would very much like to know the truth myself, Mr. Nutt. "'Thank you very much,' said Glenda, folding her arms and trying to look stern, "'while all the time a voice in her head was whispering, "'Chaise long, chaise long. "'When no one else is here, you can have a go at languishing.' "'It's a kind of medicine with words,' said Nutt carefully. "'Sometimes people fool themselves into believing things that aren't true.' Sometimes that can be quite dangerous for the person. They see the world in a wrong way. They won't let themselves see that what they believe is wrong. But often there is a part of the mind that does know, and the right words can let it out. He gave them a worried look. "'Well, that's nice,' said Juliet. "'It sounds like hocus-pocus to me,' said Glenda. "'Folk know their own minds.' She folded her arms again and saw Nut glance at them. "'Well?' she demanded. "'Haven't you ever seen elbows before?' "'Never such pretty dimpled ones, Miss Glenda, on such tightly folded arms.' Up until that point, Glenda had never realised that Juliet had such a dirty laugh, to which Glenda fervently hoped she was not entitled. "'Glenda's got a B-O, Glenda's got a B-O. "'It's bow, actually,' Glenda said, swiping to the back of her mind the recollection that it had taken her years to find that out herself.' "'and I was just helping. "'We're helping him, aren't we, Mr. Nutt?' "'Doesn't he look sweet lying there?' said Juliet. "'All pink.' "'She stroked Trev's greasy hair inexpertly. "'Just like a little boy.' "'Yes, he's always been good at that,' said Glenda. "'Why don't you go and get the little boy a cup of tea and a biscuit? "'Not one of the chocolate ones. "'That'll take some time,' she said, as the girl shimmied away. "'She tends to get distracted.' Her mind wanders, and it amuses itself elsewhere. Trev tells me that, despite your more mature appearance, you are the same age as her, said Nutt. You really don't talk to many ladies, do you, Mr. Nutt? Oh, dear, have I made another faux pas, said Nutt, suddenly all nerves again, to such an extent that she took pity on him. Would this be faux pas that looks as if it should be said like forks pass? Er, uh, yes. Glenda nodded, satisfied, another literary puzzle solved. "'Better not use the word mature unless you are talking about cheese or wine. Not good to use it for ladies.' She stared at him, wondering how to pose the next question. She opted for directness. She wasn't very good at anything else. "'Trev is sure you sort of died and came alive again.' "'So I understand. Not many people do that.' The vast majority do not, I believe. How did you do it? I don't know. This is rather late in the day, I must admit, but you don't feel any hunger for blood or brains, do you? Not at all. Just pies. I like pies. I'm very ashamed about the pies. It will not happen again, Miss Glenda. I fear my body was acting on its own. It needed instant nourishment. "'Trev says you used to be chained to an anvil?' "'Yes. That was because I was worthless. "'Then I was taken to see Ladyship, and she told me, "'You are worthless, but I think not unworthy, and I will give you worth.' "'But you must have had parents. I do not know. "'There are many things I don't know. "'There is a door.' "'What?' "'A door in my head.' Some things are behind the door, and I don't know them. But that is all right, ladyship says. Glenda felt like giving up. Nut answered questions, yes, but really all you ended up with was more questions. But she persevered. It was like stabbing away at a tin can, hoping to find a way in. 
Ladyship is a real lady, is she? Castles and servants and what not? Oh, yes, even a what not. She is my friend, and she is mature like cheese and wine because she has lived for a long time and is not old. But she sent you here, yes? Did she teach you whatever it was you used on Trev? Beside Glenda, Trev stirred. No, said Nut. I read the works of the masters in the library all by myself. But she did tell me that people, too, were a kind of living book, and I would have to learn to read them. Well, you'd read Trev well enough. Be told, though, don't try that stuff on me, or you'll never see another pie. Yes, Miss Glenda. Sorry, Miss Glenda. She sighed. What is it about me? The moment they look downcast, I feel sorry for them. She looked up. He was watching her. Stop that! Sorry, Miss Glenda. But you got to see the football, at least. Did you enjoy it? Nut's face lit up. Yes, it was wonderful. The noise, the crowds, the chanting. Oh, the chanting. It becomes a second blood. The unison. To not be alone. To be not just one, but one and all of one mind and purpose. Excuse me. He had seen her face. So you quite liked it, then? said Glenda. The intensity of Nut's outburst had been like opening an oven door. It was a mercy her hair hadn't frizzled. Oh, yes, the ambiance was wonderful. I didn't try those, Glenda hazarded, but the peas pudding is usually good. The scrape of crockery and the tinkling of a teaspoon heralded the arrival of Juliet, or rather of the cup of tea that she was holding in front of her as if it were a grail, so that she drifted along behind it like a comet's tail. Glenda was impressed. The tea was in the cup instead of in the saucer, and it was the acceptable brown colour that is usually characteristic of tea, and was usually the only tea-like characteristic of tea made by Juliet. Trev sat up, and Glenda wondered how long he might have been paying attention. All right, he might be good in an emergency, and at least he washed sometimes and owned a toothbrush, but Juliet was special, wasn't she? All she needed was a prince. Technically, that meant Lord Vetinari, but he was far too old. Besides, no one was sure which side of the bed he got out of, or even if he went to bed at all. But one day a prince would come, even if Glenda had to drag him on a chain. She turned her head. Nut was watching her intently again. Well, her book was locked down tightly. No one was going to riffle through her pages. And tomorrow she would find out what the wizards were up to. That was easy. She'd be invisible. In the stillness of the night, Nut sat in his special place, which was yet another room very close to the vats. Candles burned as he sat at a rescued table, staring at a piece of paper and absent-mindedly cleaning out his ear with the point of his pencil. Nut was technically an expert on love poetry throughout the ages, and had discussed it at length with Miss Heelstether, the castle librarian. He had also tried to discuss it with ladyship, but she had laughed and said it was frivolity, although quite helpful as a tutorial on the use of vocabulary, scansion, rhythm, and effect as a means to an end, to wit, getting a young lady to take all her clothes off. At that particular point, Nut had not really understood what she meant. It sounded like some sort of conjuring trick. He tapped the pencil on the page. The castle library had been full of poetry, and he'd read it avidly as he read all books, not knowing why it had been written or what exactly it was supposed to achieve. But generally, poems written by men to women followed a very similar format. Now, with a world's worth of the finest poetry to choose from, he was lost for words. Then he nodded to himself. Ah, yes, Robert Scandal's famous poem, Oi, to his deaf mistress. It surely had the right shape and tempo. Of course, there had to be a muse. Oh, yes, all poetry needed a muse. That might present a difficulty. Juliet, while quite attractive, was also, in his mind, a kind of amiable ghost. Hmm, ah, ah, of course. Nut pulled the pencil out of his ear, hesitated, and wrote, I sing, but not of love, for love is blind, but celebrate instead the muse of kindness. The fires in the vats cooled, but Nut's brain was suddenly ablaze.
Round about midnight, Glenda decided it was safe enough to leave the boys alone to get up to whatever it was boys got up to when women weren't around to look after them, and made sure that she and Juliet were on the late cross-town bus. That meant she actually got to sleep in her own bed. She looked around the tiny bedroom by candlelight and met the gaze, which was quite difficult, of Mr Wobble, the three-eyed transcendental teddy bear. It would have been nice to have a bit of cosmic explanation at this point, but the universe never gave you explanations, it just gave you more questions. She reached down surreptitiously, even though there was only a three-eyed teddy bear watching her, and picked up the latest Eradney Comb Butworthy from the cache unsuccessfully hidden below. After ten minutes of reading, which took her some way into the book, Ms. Combe Butworthy producing volumes that were even slimmer than her heroines, she experienced déjà vu. Moreover, the déjà vu was squared, because she had the feeling of having had the déjà vu before. "'They're really all the same, aren't they?' she said to the three-eyed teddy bear. "'You know it's going to be Mary the maid, or someone like her?' There's got to be two men, and she will end up with the nice one, and there has to be misunderstandings, and they never do anything more than kiss, and it's absolutely guaranteed that, for example, an exciting civil war, or an invasion by trolls, or even a scene with any cooking in it, is not going to happen. The best you can expect is a thunderstorm. It really had nothing to do with real life at all which, although short on civil wars and invasions by trolls, at least had the decency to have lots of cooking. The book dropped out of her fingers, and thirty seconds later she was sound asleep. Surprisingly, no neighbour needed her in the night, so she got up, dressed, and breakfasted in what was an almost unfamiliar world. She opened her door to take breakfast to Widow Crowdy, and found Juliet on the doorstep. The girl took a step back. "'Are you going out, Glendy? It's early.' "'Well, you're up,' said Glenda, "'and with a newspaper I'm pleased to see.' "'Isn't it exciting?' said Juliet, and thrust the paper at her. Glenda took one look at the picture on the front page, took a second, closer look, and then grabbed Juliet and pulled her inside. "'You can see they're Tonkas,' Juliet observed, in a voice that was much too matter-of-fact for Glenda's liking. "'You shouldn't know what they look like,' she said, smacking the paper down on her kitchen table. "'What? I've got three brothers, and I?' "'Everyone bathes in a tub in front of the fire, don't they? "'It's not like they're anything special. "'Anyway, it's cultural, right? "'Remember when you took me to that place full of people in the nuddy? "'You stayed in there hours.' "'It was the Royal Art Museum,' said Glenda, "'thanking her stars that they were indoors. "'That's different.' "'She tried to read the story, "'but it was very difficult with that amazing picture beside it, "'just where an eye might stray again and again.' Glenda enjoyed her job. She didn't have a career. They were for people who could not hold down jobs. She was very good at what she did, so she did it all the time, without paying much attention to the world. But now her eyes were opened. In fact, it was time to blink. Under the headline, New Light on Ancient Game, was a picture of a vase, or rather more grandly, an urn, in orange and black. It showed some very tall and skinny men. Their masculinity was beyond doubt, but possibly beyond belief. They were apparently struggling for possession of a ball. One of them was lying on the ground and looked as if he was in some pain. The translation of the name of the urn was, said the caption, The Tackle. According to the accompanying story, someone at the Royal Art Museum had found the urn in an old storeroom, and it contained scrolls which it said here, had the original rules of foot the ball laid down in the early years of the century of the summer Weeville, a thousand years ago, when the game was played in honour of the goddess Pedestriana. Glenda skimmed through the rest of it, because there was a lot of rest to skim. An artist's impression of the aforesaid goddess adorned page three. She was, of course, beautiful. You seldom saw a goddess portrayed as ugly. This probably had something to do with their ability to strike people down instantly. In Pedestriana's case, she would probably have gone for the feet. Glenda put the paper down, seething with anger. And as a cook, she knew how to seethe. This wasn't football, except that the Guild of Historians had said that it was, and could prove it not only with old parchments, but also with an urn, and she could see that you were on the wrong end of an argument if you were up against an urn.
But it was too neat, wasn't it? Except, why? His lordship didn't like football, but here was an article saying that this game was very old and had its own goddess. And if there were two things this city liked, it was tradition and goddesses, especially if the goddesses were a bit short on the chiffon above the waist. Did his lordship let them put anything in the paper? What was going on? "'I've got business to attend to,' she said sternly. "'It's good that you bought a decent paper, but you don't want to read this kind of stuff.' "'I didn't. Who's interested in that? I got it for the advert. Look!' Glenda had never bothered much about the adverts in the paper, because they were put there by people who were after your money. But there it was, right there. Madame Sharn of Bianc gives you micro-mail. "'You said we could go,' said Juliet pointedly. "'Yes, well, that was before—' "'You said we could go.' "'Yes, but, well, has anyone from the sisters ever gone to a fashion show? "'It's not that kind of thing, is it?' "'Doesn't say that in the paper. Says admission free. "'You said we could go.' Two o'clock,' thought Glenda. "'Suppose I could manage it. "'All right. Meet at work at half-past one, you hear? "'Not a minute later. I've got things to do.' "'The University Council meets every day at half-past eleven, she thought to herself. "'Oh, to be a fly on that wall.' She grinned. Trev was sitting in the battered old chair that served as his office in the vats. Work was proceeding at its usual reliable snail's pace. "'Ah, I see you are in early, Mr. Trev,' said Nutt. "'I'm sorry not to have been here. I had to go and deal with an emergency candelabra upset.' He leaned closer. "'I have done what you asked, Mr. Trev.' Trev snapped out of his daydream of Juliet and said, "'Huh?' You asked me to write to improve your poem for Miss Juliet. You've done it. Perhaps you would like to have a look, Mr. Trev. He handed the paper to Trev and stood nervously by the chair as a pupil stands by the teacher. After a very short while, Trev's forehead wrinkled. What's e-er? That's air, sir, as in where'er she walks. You mean like she walks on air, said Trev. No, Mr. Trev. I should just put it down to poetry if I were you. Trev struggled on. He had never had much to do with poetry, except the sort that started There Was a Young Lady of Quirm, but this looked like the real stuff. The page seemed to be crowded and yet full of space as well. Also, the writing was extremely curly, and that was a sure sign, wasn't it? You didn't get that sort of thing from the Lady of Quirm. This is great stuff, Mr. Nutt. This is really great stuff. This is poetry, but what really is it saying? Nutt cleared his throat. Well, sir, the essence of poetry of this nature is to create a mood that will make the recipient, that is to say, sir, the young lady who you are going to send it to, feel very kindly disposed to the author of the poem, which would be you, sir, in this case. According to ladyship, everything else is just showing off. I have brought you a pen and an envelope. If you would kindly sign the poem, I will ensure that it gets to Miss Juliet. I bet no one's ever written her a poem before, said Trev, skating quickly over the truth that he hadn't either. I'd love to be there when she reads it. That would not be advised, said Nutt quickly. The general consensus is that the lady concerned reads it in the absence of the hopeful swain, that is you, sir, and forms a beneficent mental picture of him. Your actual presence might actually get in the way, especially since I see you haven't changed your shirt again today. Besides, I am informed that there is a possibility that all her clothes will fall off. Trev, who had been struggling with the concept of Swain, fast-forwarded to this information at speed. Uh, say that again? All her clothes might fall off. I am sorry about this, but it appears to be a by-product of the whole business of poetry. But broadly speaking, sir, it carries the message you have asked for, which is to say, I think you're really fit, I really fancy you. Can we have a date? No hanky-panky, I promise. However, sir, since it is a love poem, I have taken the liberty of altering it slightly to carry the suggestion that if hanky or panky should appear to be welcomed by the young lady, she will not find you wanting in either department. Arch-Chancellor Ridcully rubbed his hands together. "'Well, gentlemen, I hope we have all seen the papers this morning, or glanced at them at any rate. I thought that the front page was not the place. 
said the lecturer in recent rooms. It quite put me off my breakfast, metaphorically speaking, of course. Apparently the urn has been in the museum cellars for at least three hundred years, but for some reason it makes its presence felt now, said Bridcully. Of course, they have tons of stuff in there that's never really been looked at properly, and the city was going through a prudish period then, and didn't care to know about that sort of thing. What, that men have donkers? said Dr. Hicks. That sort of news gets out sooner or later. He looked around at the disapproving faces, and added, Skull ring, remember? Under college statute, the head of the Department of Post-Mortem Communications is entitled, nay, required, to make tasteless, divisive, and moderately evil remarks. I I'm sorry, but these are your rules. Thank you, Dr. Hicks. Your uncalled-for remarks are duly noted and appreciated. You know, it seems very suspicious to me that this wretched urn has turned up at just this time, observed the senior wrangler, and I hope I'm not alone in this. I know what you mean, said Hicks. If I didn't know that the Arch-Chancellor had his work cut out to persuade Vetinari to let us play, I would think that this was some sort of plan. Yes, said Ridcully thoughtfully. The old rules look a lot more interesting, sir, said Ponder. Yes. Did you read the bit that said players were not allowed to use their hands, sir, a and the high priest takes to the field of play to ensure that the rules are honoured? I can't see that catching on these days, said the lecturer in recent runes. He's armed with a poisoned dagger, sir, said Ponder. Ah, well, that should make for a more interesting game at least, eh, Mustrum? Mustrum? What? Oh, yes, yes. Something to think about indeed, yes, indeed. One man in charge, the onlooker who sees most of the game, uh, the gamer, in fact. So what move have I missed? Sorry, Arch-Chancellor? Ridcully blinked at Ponder Stibbons. What? Oh, just composing my thoughts as one does. He sat up straight. In any case, the rules don't concern us at this point. We have to play this game in any eventuality, and so we will abide by them in the best traditions of sportsmanship until we have worked out where they may be most usefully broken to our advantage. Mr. Stibbons, you are collating our studies of the game. The floor is yours. Thank you, asked Chancellor. Ponder cleared his throat. Gentlemen, the game of football is clearly about more than the rules and the nature of the play. In any case, these are pure mechanical considerations. The chanting and, of course, the food are of more concern to us, I feel. They seem to be an integral part of the game. Regrettably, so do the supporters' clubs. What is the nature of this problem? Ridcully inquired. They hit one another over the head with them. It would be true to say that brawling and mindless violence, such as occurred yesterday afternoon, is one of the cornerstones of the sport. A far cry from its ancient beginnings, then, said the Chair of Indefinite Studies, shaking his head. Well, yes, I understand that in those days the losing team was throttled. However, I suppose this would be called mindful violence that took place with the enthusiastic consent of the entire community, or at least that part of it that was still capable of breath. Fortunately, we do not yet have supporters, so that is not at present our problem, and I propose we go directly to the pies. There was a chorus of general agreement from the wizards. Food was their cup of tea, and, if possible, a slice of cake, too. Some of them were already watching the door in anticipation of the tea trolley. It seemed like an age since nine. Central to the game is the pie, Ponder went on, which is generally of short-crust pastry containing appropriate pie-like substances. I collected half a dozen and tested them on the usual subjects. Uh, the students, said Ridcully. Yes. They said they were pretty awful. Not a patch on the pies here, they said. They finished them off, however. Examination of the ingredients suggests that they consisted of gravy, fat and salt, and, in so far as it was possible to tell, none of the students appears to have died. So we're ahead on pies, then, said Ridcully cheerfully. I suppose so, Arch-Chancellor, although I do not believe that the pie quality plays any role... He stopped because the door had swung open to allow the ingress of a reinforced heavy-duty tea trolley. Since it was not being propelled by her, 
The wizards paid no further attention and settled down to the passing of cups, the handing round of the sugar bowl, the inspection of the quality of the chocolate biscuits with a view to taking more than one's entitlement, and all the other little diversions without which a committee would be a clever device for making worthwhile decisions quickly. When the rattling had ceased and the last biscuit had been fought for, Ridcully tinkled his teaspoon on the rim of his cup for silence. Although, since he was Ridcully, this only added the crash of broken crockery to the hubbub. Once the girl in charge of the trolley had sponged everybody down, he continued, "'The chanting, gentlemen, appears to be another inconsequentiality at first sight, but I have reason to believe that it has a certain power, and we will ignore it at our peril. I see the museum's translators say the modern chants were originally hymns to the goddess, calling on her to grant her favours to the team of choice.' while naiads danced on the edges of the field of play, the better to encourage the players to greater feats of prowess. Naiads, said the chair of indefinite studies. They're water nymphs, aren't they? Young women with very thin, damp clothing. Why would anyone want them around? Besides, didn't they drown sailors by singing to them? Ridcully let the thoughtful paws hang in the air for a while before volunteering— Fortunately, I don't think anyone these days would expect that we play football under water. The pies would float, said the chair of indefinite studies. Not necessarily, said Ponder. What about clothing, Mr. Stibbons? I assume there will be some. Temperatures were somewhat warmer in olden days. I can assure you that no one will insist on nudity. Ponder might have noticed the rattle as the girl with the tea trolley almost dropped a cup but was gracious enough not to notice that he had noticed. He went on. Currently, the teams wear old shirts and short trousers. How short, said the chair of indefinite studies, urgency in his voice. About mid-knee, I believe, said Ponder. Is this likely to be a problem? Yes, it is. The knee should be covered. It's a well-known fact that a glimpse of the male knee can drive women into a frenzy of libidinousness. There was another rattle from the tea trolley, but Ponder ignored it, because his own head had rattled a bit, too. "'Are you sure about that, sir?' "'It is established fact, young Stibbons.' Ponder had found a grey hair on his comb that morning, and was not in the mood to take this standing up. "'And precisely in what books does—' he began, but Ridcully interrupted with unusual diplomacy. Generally, he liked little tiffs among the faculty.' A few more inches to prevent mobbing by the ladies should present us with no problems, surely, Mr. Stibbons. Oops! This last was to Glenda, who had dropped two spoons on the carpet. She gave him a cursory curtsy. Ah, uh, yes, and we should sport the university colours, he went on, with a hint of nervousness. Ridcully prided himself on treating the staff well, and indeed did so whenever he remembered them but the expression of intelligent amusement on the face of the dumpy girl had unnerved him. It was as if a chicken had winked. "'Um, yes, yes, indeed,' he said. "'The good old red jersey we used to wear in my rowing days, with the big U's on the front, bold as brass.' He glanced at the maid, who was frowning. "'But he was Arch-Chancellor, wasn't he? It said so on his door, didn't it?' "'That's what we'll do,' he declared. "'We'll look into pies, although I've seen a few pies that don't bear looking into. Ha-ha! <laughs> and we'll adapt the good old red sweater. What's next, Mr. Stibbons?' Oh, "'With regard to the chanting, sir, I've asked the Master of the Music to work on some options,' said Ponder smoothly. "'We need to select a team as soon as possible.' "'I don't see what the rush is,' said the Chair of Indefinite Studies, who had almost nodded off in the arms of a chocolate biscuit surfeit. "'The bequest, remember?' said the head of Department of Post-Mortem Communications, we... Pas all la domestique, snapped the lecturer in recent runes. Automatically, Ridcully turned again to look at Glenda, and got a distinct feeling that here was a woman about to learn a foreign language in a hurry. It was an odd but slightly exciting idea. Until this moment, he had never thought of the maids in the singular. They were all servants. He was polite to them, and smiled when appropriate. He assumed they sometimes did other things than fetch and carry, and sometimes went off to get married, and sometimes just went off. Up until now, though, he'd never really thought that they might think, let alone what they thought about, and least of all, what they thought about the wizards. He turned back to the table. "'Who'll be doing the chanting, Mr. Stubbins?' Uh, "'The aforesaid supporters. Fans, sir. It's short for fanatics.' 
And ours will be who? Well, we are the largest employer in the city, sir. As a matter of fact, I think Vetinari is, and I wish to all hells I knew exactly who he is employing, said Ridcully. I'm sure our loyal staff will support us, said the lecturer in recent runes. He turned to Glenda, and to Ridcully's dismay, said glutinously, I'm sure you would be a fan, would you not, my child? The Arch-Chancellor sat back. He had a definite feeling that this was going to be fun. Well, she hadn't blushed and she hadn't yelled. In fact, she had not done anything apart from carefully pick up the china. I support Dolly sisters, sir, always have done. And are they any good? Having a poor patch at the moment, sir. Ah, then I expect you will want to support our team, which will be very good indeed. Can't do that, sir. You've got to support your team, sir. But you just said they weren't doing well. That's when you support your team, sir. Otherwise, you're a numper. A numper being... He's someone who's all cheering when things are going well, and then runs off to another team when there's a losing streak. They always shouts the loudest. So you support the same team all your life? Well, if you move away, it's okay to change. No one will mind much unless you go to a real enemy. She looked at their puzzled expressions, sighed, and went on. Like Knapp Hill United and the Whoppers, or Dolly Sisters and Dimwell Old Pals, or the Pigsty Hill Porkpackers and the Cockbill Boars, you know? When they clearly didn't, she continued, They hate each other, always have done, always will. They are the bad matches. The shutters go up for those. I don't know what my neighbours would say if they saw me cheering a dimmer. But that's dreadful, said the Chair of Indefinite Studies. "'Excuse me, miss,' said Ponder, "'but most of those pairs are quite close to one another, "'so why do they hate one another so much?' "'That at least is easy,' said Dr. Hicks. "'It's hard to hate people who are a long way away. "'You forget how dreadful they are, "'but you see a neighbour's warts every day. "'That's just the sort of cynical comment I'd expect "'from a post-mortem communicator,' grumbled the Chair of Indefinite Studies. "'Or a realist,' said Ridcully, smiling. "'But Dolly Sisters and Dimwell are quite far apart, miss,' Glenda shrugged. "'I know, but it's always been like that. That's how it is. That's all I know.' "'Well, thank you.' There was no mistaking the hanging question. "'Glenda,' she said. "'I see there are a great many things we don't yet understand.' "'Yes, sir. Everything.' She hadn't meant to say that aloud. It just escaped of its own accord." There was a stirring among the wizards, who were nonplussed because what had happened could not really have happened. The tea trolley might as well have neighed. Ridcully banged his hand on the table before the others could summon up words. "'Well said, miss,' he chuckled, as Glinda waited for the floor to open and swallow her. "'And I'm sure that remark came from the heart, because I suspect it could not have come from the head. Sorry, sir, but the gentleman did ask for my opinion.' "'Now that one was from the head. Well done,' said Ridcully. "'So do, therefore, give us the benefit of your thinking, Miss Glenda.' Still in a kind of shock, Glenda looked into the Arch-Chancellor's eyes and saw that it was no time to be less than bold, but that was unnerving too. "'Well, what's this all about, sir? If you want to play, just go and do it, yes? Why change things?' "'The game of foot the ball is very behind the times, Miss Glenda.' "'Well, so are you. Sorry, sorry, but, but well, you know. Wizards are always wizards.' Not a lot changes in here, does it? And then you talk about some master of the music to make a new chant, and that's not how it goes. The shove makes up the chants. They just happen. They just, like, come out of the air. And the pies are pretty awful, that's true. But when you're in the shove and it's mucky weather, and the water's coming through your coat, and your shoes are leaking, and then you bite into your pie, and you know that everyone else is biting into their pie, and the grease slides down your sleeve, well, sir, I don't have the words for it, sir, I really don't, sir. There's a feeling I can't describe, but it's a bit like being a kid at Hogswatch, and you can't just buy it, sir. You can't write it down or organise it or make it shiny or make it tame. Sorry to speak out of turn, sirs, but that's the long and the short of it. You must have known it, sir. Didn't your father ever take you to a game? Ridcully looked down the table at the council and noted a certain moistness of eye. Wizards were, largely, of that generation from which grandfathers are carved. They were also, largely, large, and awash with cynical crabbiness and the barnacles of the years. But the smell of cheap overcoats in the rain 
which always had a tint and taste of soot in it, and your father, or maybe your grandfather, lifting you onto his shoulders, and there you were, above all those cheap hats and scarves, and you could feel the warmth of the shove, watch its tides, feel its heartbeat, and then, certainly, a pie would be handed up, or maybe half a pie if times were hard, and if they were really bad, it might be a handful of fat, greasy peas, which were to be eaten one at a time to make them last longer. Or when times were flush, there might be a real treat, like a hot dog you didn't have to share, or a plate of scouse with yellow fat beading on the top, and lumps of gristle you could chew at on the way home. Meat which now you would not give to a dog, but which was sacred lotus eaten with the gods, in the rain, in the cheering, in the bosom of the shove. The Arch-Chancellor blinked. No time seemed to have passed, unless you count seventy years which had gone past like that. Uh, very graphically argued, he said, and pulled himself together. Interesting points, well made. But, you see, we have a responsibility here. After all, this city was just a handful of villages before my university was built. We are concerned about the fighting in the streets yesterday. We heard a rumour that someone was killed because he supported the wrong team. We can't stand by and let this sort of thing happen. So you'll be shutting down the Assassin's Guild, will you, sir? There was a gasp from every mouth, including her own. The only rational thought that didn't flee from her mind was, I wonder if that job is still going in the Fool's Guild. The pay wasn't much, but they do know how to appreciate a pie. When she dared look, the Arch-Chancellor was staring at the ceiling while his fingers drummed on the table. I should have been more careful, Glenda whined in her own ear. Don't get chatty with knobs. You forget what you are, but they don't. The drumming stopped. Good point. Well put, said Ridcully, and I shall marshal my responses thusly. He flicked a finger, and, with a smell of gooseberries and a pop, a small red globe appeared in the air over the table. One. The assassins, while deadly, are not random, and indeed are mostly a danger to one another. Assassination is only to be feared, generally speaking, by those powerful enough to have a stab, as it were, at defending themselves. Another little globe appeared. Two. It is an article of faith with them that property is undamaged. They are invariably courteous and considerate, and notoriously silent, and would never dream of inhuming their target in a public street. A third globe appeared. Three. They are organised, and therefore amenable to civic influence. Lord Vetinari is very keen on that sort of thing. And another globe popped into life. And four, Lord Vetinari is himself a trained assassin, majoring in stealth and poisons. I am not sure he would share your opinion. And he is a tyrant, even if he has developed tyranny to such a point of metaphysical perfection that it is a dream rather than a force. He does not have to listen to you, you see. He doesn't even have to listen to me. He listens to the city. I don't know how he does, but he does. And he plays it like a violin. Ridcully paused, then went on. Or like the most complicated game you can imagine. The city works. Not perfectly, but better than it is ever done. I think it's time for football to change, too. He smiled at her expression. What is your job, young lady? Because you're wasted in it. It was probably meant as a compliment, but Glenda, her head so bewilderingly full of the Arch-Chancellor's words that they were trickling out of her ears, heard herself say, I'm certainly not wasted, sir. You've never eaten better pies than mine. I run the night kitchen. The metaphysics of real politics were not a subject of interest to most of those present, but they knew where they were with pies. She was the centre of attention already, but now it blazed with interest. You do? said the Chair of Indefinite Studies. We thought it was the pretty girl. Really, said Glenda, brightly. Well, I run it. So, who does that wonderful pie you send up here sometimes, with the cheese pastry and the hot pickle there? The ploughman's pie, sir. Me, sir. My own recipe. Really? How do you manage to get the pickled onions to stay so hard and crispy in the baking? It's just amazing. My own recipe, sir, said Glenda firmly. It wouldn't be mine if I told anyone else. Well said, said Ridcully gleefully. You can't go around asking craftsmen the secrets of their trade, old chap. It's a thing you just don't do. 
Now, I am concluding this meeting, although what it has in fact concluded I shall decide later. He turned back to Glenda. Thank you for coming here today, Miss Glenda, and I shall not inquire why a young lady who works in the night kitchen is pouring tea up here at nearly noon. Do you have any further advice for us? Well, said Glenda, since you ask... No, I really shouldn't say. This is hardly the moment for bashfulness, do you think? Well, it's about your strip, sir. That means your team colours. Nothing wrong with red and yellow. No one else uses those two, but, well... You want two big U's on the front, right? Like, you, you? She waved her hands in the air. Yes, that's exactly right. After all, it's what we are, Ridcully nodded. Are you sure? I mean, I know you gentlemen are bachelors and all, but, well, you'll look like you've got bosoms. Honestly. Oh, God, sir, she's right, said Ponder. It will make a rather unfortunate shape. "'What kind of mind would see something like that in a pair of innocent letters?' the lecturer in recent runes demanded angrily. "'I don't know, sir,' said Glenda, "'but every man watching the football has got one, and they would make up nicknames. They love doing that.' "'I suspect you may be right,' said Ridcully. "'But we never had any trouble when I was rowing in the old days.' "'Football followers are rather more robust in their language, sir,' said Ponder. "'Yes, and in those days we were pretty careless when it came to throwing fireballs, as I recall,' Ridcully mused. "'Oh, dear, what a shame. I was looking forward to giving the old rag a bit of an airing again. Still, I'm sure we can change the design a little to save embarrassment all round. Thank you once again, Miss Glenda. Bosoms, eh? Ha! Narrow escape there all round. Good day to you.' He shut the door after the trolley, which Glenda was pushing as if in a race. Molly, the head maid in the day kitchen, was fretting at the end of the corridor beyond. She sagged with relief when Glenda came round the corner, teacups rattling. "'Was it all right? Did anything go wrong? I'll get into so much trouble if anything went wrong. Tell me nothing went wrong.' "'It was all fine,' said Glenda. That got her a suspicious look. "'Are you sure you owe me for this?' The laws of favours are amongst the most fundamental in the multiverse. The first law is, nobody asks for just one favour. The second request, after the granting of the first favour, prefaced by, and can I be really cheeky, is the asking of the second favour. If the aforesaid second request is not granted, the second law ensures that the need for any gratitude for the first favour is nullified, and, in accordance with the third law, the favour-giver has not done any favours at all, and the favour-field collapses. But Glenda reckoned she'd won a lot of favours over the years, and was owed a few herself. Besides, she had reason to believe that Molly had been spending the welcome break in dalliance with her boyfriend, who worked in the bakery. "'Can you get me into the banquet on Wednesday night?' "'Oh, sorry, the butler chooses who gets those jobs,' said Molly. "'Ah, yes. The tall, thin girls,' Glenda thought. "'Why in the world would you want to get in anyway?' Molly said. "'It's a lot of running around and not much pay when all's said and done. "'I mean, we get some decent leftovers after a big affair, but what's that to you?' "'Everyone knows that you're the leftover queen,' she paused, too awkwardly. "'I mean, we all know you're really good at making wonderful food, with always a little something left over,' she gabbled. "'That's all I meant.' "'I didn't think you meant anything else,' said Glenda, keeping her voice level. But she raised it again to add, as Molly scurried off, "'I can pay back the favour right now. You've got two flowery handprints on your ass. The glare that came back was a small victory, but you have to take what you can get. Still, that strange interlude, which she was sure she would regret, had taken up a lot of time. She had to get the night kitchen organised. When the door had closed behind the rather forthright maid, Ridcully nodded meaningfully at Ponder. All right, Mr. Stippens. You were glancing at your thaumometer the whole time I was talking to her. Out with it. Some kind of entanglement said Ponder. "'And there was me thinking that Vetinari was behind the business with the urn,' said Ridcully gloomily. "'I should have realised he's never that unsubtle.' "'Oh, I assumed it was going to be something like that right at the start,' said the lecturer in recent runes. "'Indeed,' said the Chair of Indefinite Studies. "'It crossed my mind as soon as I saw it in the paper.' "'Gentlemen,' said Ridcully, "'I am humbled that as soon as I have an idea about what something is, "'it turns out that you all knew what it was. I am amazed.' "'Excuse me,' said Dr. Hicks, "'but I don't have a clue what you're talking about. 
"'You are out of touch. "'You've been spending too long underground, sir,' "'said the lecturer in recent runes sternly. "'You don't often let me out, that's why, "'and can I remind you that I have to maintain "'a vital line of cosmic defence in this establishment here "'with a staff of exactly one, and he's dead. "'You mean Charlie? "'I remember old Charlie. "'Keen worker, nevertheless,' said Ridcully. "'Yes, but I have to keep rewiring him all the time,' sighed Hicks. "'I do try to keep you abreast of things in my monthly reports. "'I hope you read them.' "'Tell me, Dr. Hicks,' said Ponder, "'did you experience anything unusual "'when that young lady was speaking so eloquently?' "'Well, yes. "'I had a pleasant moment of happy recollection about my father.' "'So did we all, I'm sure,' said Ponder. "'There was sombre nodding around the table.' I never knew my father. I was brought up by my aunts. I had déjà vu without the original vu. And it wasn't magic, suggested the lecturer in recent runes. No, religion, I suspect, said Ridcully. A god invoked, that sort of thing. Not invoked, Mustrum, said Dr. Hicks. Summoned by bloodshed. Oh, I hope not, said Ridcully, getting to his feet. I would like to try a little experiment this afternoon, gentlemen. We will not talk about football. We will not speculate about football. We will not worry about football. You are going to make us play it, aren't you? said the lecturer in recent runes glumly. Yes, said Ridcully, more than somewhat miffed at the spoiling of a perfectly good peroration. Just a little kickabout to help us get some hands-on experience of the game as it is played. Er, strictly, under the new rules, by which I mean the ancient rules we are taking as our model, hands-on experience means no hands, said Ponder. Well pointed out, that man. Put the word out, will you? Football practice on the lawn after lunch. One thing you had to remember when dealing with dwarfs was that while they shared the same world as you did, metaphorically they thought about it as if it were upside down. Only the richest and most influential of dwarfs lived in the deepest caverns. For a dwarf, a penthouse in the centre of the city would be some kind of slum. Dwarfs liked it dark and cool. It didn't stop there. A dwarf on the up and up was really on his uppers, and upper-class dwarfs were lower class. A dwarf who was rich, healthy, and had respect, and his own rat farm, justifiably felt at rock bottom, and was held in low esteem. When you talk to dwarfs, you turned your mind upside down. The city, too. Of course, when you dug down in Ankh-Morpork, you just found more Ankh-Morpork, thousands of years of it, ready to be dug out and shored up and walled in with the shiny dwarf brick. It was Lord Vetinari's grand undertaking. The city's walls corseted it like a fetishist's happiest dream. Gravity offered only a limited supply of up, but the deep loam of the plain had a limitless supply of down. Glenda was surprised, therefore, to find Shatter right at the surface in the mall, alongside the really posh dress shops that were for human ladies. That made sense, however. If you were going to make a scandalous profit selling clothes, it made sense to camouflage yourself amongst other shops doing the same thing. She wasn't sure about the name, but apparently Shatter meant a wonderful surprise in Dwarfish, and if you started to laugh about that sort of thing, then you would never have time to pause for breath. She approached the door with the apprehension of one who is certain that the moment she sets foot inside she will be charged five dollars a minute for breathing, and then be held upside down and have all her wealth removed with a hook. And it was indeed classy, but it was Dwarf classy. That meant an awful lot of chain mail, and enough weaponry to take over a city. But if you paid attention, you realised it was female chain mail and weaponry. That was how things were happening, apparently. Dwarf women had got fed up with looking like dwarf men all the time, and were metaphorically melting down their breastplates in order to make something a little lighter and with adjustable straps. Juliet had explained this on the way down, although, of course, Juliet did not use the word metaphorically, it being several syllables beyond her range. There were battle-axes and war-hammers, but all with that certain feminine touch. One war-axe, apparently capable of cleaving a backbone lengthwise, was beautifully engraved with flowers. It was another world, and as she stood just inside the doorway looking around, Glenda felt relieved that there were other humans in the place. In fact, there were quite a few, and that was surprising. 
One of them, a young human woman with steel boots six inches high, gravitated towards them as if drawn by a magnet, and, given the amount of ferrous metal on her body, a magnet was something she would never pass in a hurry. She was holding a tray of drinks. "'There's black mead, red mead, and white mead,' she said, and then lowered her voice by a few decibels and three social classes. "'Actually, the red mead's really sherry, and all the dwarf ladies are drinking it. They like not having to quaff.' "'Do we have to pay for this?' said Glenda nervously. "'It's free,' said the girl. She indicated a bowl of small black things on the tray, each one pierced with a cocktail stick, and said, slightly hopelessly, "'And do try the rat fruit.' Before Glenda could stop her, Juliet had taken one and was chewing enthusiastically. "'What part of a rat is its fruit?' asked Glenda. The girl with the tray did not look directly at her. "'Well, you know shepherd's pie,' she said. "'I know twelve different recipes,' said Glenda, in a moment of rare smugness. This was actually a lie. She probably knew about four recipes, because there was only so much you could do with meat and potatoes— but the glittering, metallic grandeur of the place was getting on her nerves, and she felt the need to stick up for herself. And then realisation dawned. "'Oh, you mean like traditional shepherd's pie,' she said, "'made with the—' "'I'm afraid so,' said the girl, "'but they're very popular with the ladies.' "'Don't have any more jewels,' said Glenda quickly. "'It's quite nice,' said Juliet. "'Can't I have one more?' "'Just one, then,' said Glenda. "'That should even up the rat.' She helped herself to a sherry, and the girl, balancing carefully as she managed three different things with two different hands, handed her a glossy brochure. Glenda glanced through it and knew her original impression had been right. This place was so expensive they didn't tell you the price of anything. You could always be sure things were going to be expensive when they didn't tell you the price. No point in looking through it. It'd suck your wages out through your eyeballs. Free drinks? Oh, yes. With nothing else to do, she scanned the rest of the crowd. Everyone, except the growing and, in fact, quite large number of humans, had a beard. All dwarfs had beards. It was part of being a dwarf. Here, though, the beards were a little finer than you usually saw around the city, and there had been some experimentation with perms and ponytails. There were mining pickaxes on view, it was true, but carried in expensively tooled bags, as if the owner might spot a likely-looking coal seam on the way to the shops and wouldn't be able to help herself. She shared this thought with Juliet, who pointed down at the feet of another well-heeled customer and said, "'What? And spoil those gorgeous boots? They're snaky cleave-helms, they are! Four hundred dollars a pop, and you've to wait for six months!' Glenda couldn't see the face of the boot's owner, but she did see the change in her body language, the hint of preening, even from the rear. Well, she thought, I suppose if you're going to spend all of a working family's yearly income on a pair of boots, it's nice that someone notices. When you watch people, you forget that people are watching you. Glenda was not very tall, which meant that from her point of view, dwarfs were not very short and she realised that they were being approached in a determined kind of way by two dwarfs, one of whom was extremely expansive around the waist and wearing a breastplate so beautifully hammered and ornamented that taking it into battle would be an act of artistic vandalism. He, and you had to remember that all dwarfs were he unless they asserted otherwise, had, when he spoke, a voice that sounded like the darkest and most expensive type of dark chocolate, possibly smoked and the hand he offered had so many rings on each finger that you had to look with care to realise that he was not wearing a gauntlet. And she was a she, Glenda was sure of it. The chocolate was just too rich and fruity. "'So glad you could come, my dears,' she said, and the chocolate swirled. "'I am Madame Shan. I wondered if you could be of assistance to me. I really would not dream of asking, but I am, as you would put it, between a rock and a hard one.' All this was, to Glenda's annoyance, addressed to Juliet, who was eating rat fruit as if there were no tomorrow, which presumably there had not been for the rat. She giggled. "'She's with me,' said Glenda, and, without meaning to, added, "'Madame.' Madame waved another hand and more rings glistened. "'This salon is technically a mine, and that means under dwarf law I am the king of the mine, and in my mine my rules go.' "'And, since I am king, I declare that I am queen,' she said. "'Dwarf law bends and creaks, but is not broken. 
"'Well,' Glenda began, "'we—' "'Hey!' This was to Madame's smaller companion, who was actually holding a tape measure up against Juliet. "'That is Pepe,' said Madame. "'Well, if he's going to take liberties like that, I hope he's a woman,' said Glenda. "'Pepe is Pepe,' said Madame calmly. "'And there is no changing him, as it were, or her. Labels are such unhelpful things, I feel.' "'Especially yours, cause you don't put the prices on them,' said Glenda, out of sheer nervousness. "'Ah, yes, you notice these things,' said Madame, with a wink that disarmed to the point of melting. Pepe looked up excitedly at Madame, who went on, "'I wonder if you—if she—if you both would mind joining me backstage. The matter is a little delicate.' "'Oh, yes,' said Juliet immediately. Out of nowhere, other human girls materialised among the crowd and carefully opened a path towards the back of the enormous room along which Madame progressed as though propelled by invisible forces.